And there's only one way in which to know whether you are on track, and that is to subject your experience to the authority of the Word of God. You put experience under Scripture, you don't put experience over the Scripture. Jesus plainly taught that all that is spiritual is not spiritually good. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of the book of Romans, and yesterday we completed our look at chapter 7, in which the Apostle Paul confides that he has struggled with the sin nature inside him, causing him to do the things he ought not to do, and to not do the things he ought. Today we move into chapter 8, and we open this wonderful chapter with a great reminder that those who are believers in Christ for their salvation no longer fall under condemnation. Let's join Pastor Brogy as he presents a message entitled, The Blessings of Freedom. Take the Word of God this morning, would you, and turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. We're working our way through the book of Romans chapter by chapter and verse by verse. You know, someday I hope maybe to be able to preach a series of messages on the great chapters of the Bible. And of course, when I say that, I recognize that every chapter is equally important and equally inspired, but certainly there are some chapters that stand out to us more than others. If I were to ask you, well, what chapter would you like me to preach on in the Gospel of John? Many of you would probably say John chapter 3, because it is such a critical text of Scripture telling us how to get to heaven, and it speaks to our security in Christ. Or maybe if you were to preach a chapter out of 1 Corinthians, you might choose 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, or 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. Or maybe if you had to choose to preach or teach a chapter out of Hebrews, you might go to Hebrews 11, the great hall of fame of faith. But what if it were Romans? I suppose it would be very difficult for me to preach uh, any particular chapter over another. It is such a marvelous, wonderful, magnificent letter. The great 17th century German theologian, Philip Jacob Spenner, known as the father of pietism, said this concerning chapter 8. He said, if Holy Scripture was a ring and the epistle to the Romans a precious stone, then chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. Dr. Ralph Kiefer, he was a seminary professor at uh, Conservative Baptist Seminary in Denver. I was privileged to hear him as a new Christian preach when I was in Colorado, and he taught us a series of lessons when I was on staff with a Christian organization and there for the summer. He was in his 80s, and he was certainly one of the great expositors of the 20th century. And at one point in his ministry, he wrote the greatest expositors and Bible teachers of his day, and he asked them to respond to a single question. In fact, he wrote to 20 such men, and included in that list were Bible teachers like Harry Ironside, Charles Fuller, Donald Gray Barnhouse, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said this, if you erected sea and on an island and there was but a single chapter of the Bible that could wash up from the wreckage, what chapter would you like that to be? And seven of the 20, independently of each other, chose Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is a magnificent chapter of Scripture. There's a lot of places in the book of Romans where you have to pull over and park the car and sightsee a little bit, and this is certainly one of those chapters. So I expect we will be here just in this chapter alone somewhere between 8 and 10 weeks, 
And this morning, I want to just crack the door on the eighth chapter. It's certainly, without a doubt, one of the best-loved and best-known chapters in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 8, it sounds like you have found it. Follow along with you in the Bible, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending in His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you remember, the book of Romans has three principal divisions, doctrinal, national, and practical. Chapters 1 through 8 is the doctrinal section, 9 through 11 dealing with Israel, the national section, and chapters 12 through 16, the practical section. We're in the first section, the doctrinal section of Romans, and in that section he covers three great doctrines. The doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification. In the first few chapters, as he deals with the doctrine of condemnation, he describes why it is that each of us deserve justly to fall under the wrath of Almighty God. Then beginning in chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5, he deals with the doctrine of justification, how it is that a righteous, holy God can righteously put us right with Himself. How can God declare us righteous and forgiven in His sight when we deserve condemnation? And then in chapters 6 through 8, he deals with the doctrine of sanctification. That is the process by which Once we are saved, God conforms us and shapes us and makes us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in the first big section of Romans, and we're in the third section of that big section as we deal with sanctification. Now that's the broad context. Let's zoom in on the immediate context. If you were here last time, you, if you'll remember, we were studying Paul's spiritual autobiography. And we examined how there was a point in his life where he tried to serve God in his own power. Do you remember that in the seventh chapter? Hope you do. It was just a month ago. Uh, He said in 719, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. And so at the end of the chapter, he said, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And I thank God that he said, Who? and not what will set me free. A lot of people are still trying what? They're trying harder and harder, sacrificing more, trying to do more, but it's not what, it's who. Victory is in Jesus Christ. You've heard me say it many times, and I will say it again. The Christian life is impossible to live. No one can live it. But God, if He has saved you, wants to live that life in and through you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not until we admit that we cannot, but He alone can, that we are poised for potential victory. I've written here on the flyleaf of my Bible, I write it in every new Bible I get, when I try, I fail, but when I trust, He succeeds. And that's really what Christianity is. It's not what you can do for God, it's what God can do for you. Now, if you read over the eighth chapter four or five times, you would discover that there are three principal divisions to it. Uh, In the first section, verses 1 through 17, he describes our current position in Jesus Christ. And the focus of those verses is the process by which God the Holy Spirit sanctifies us or shapes us into the image of Jesus Christ. We'll crack the door on that subject today. 
Then in verses 18 to 27, he will depict our future glory as God's kids. How God's children and God's creation have a future glory that is out there in front of us when Jesus Christ comes back. And then the third section is, starts in verses 28 through the end of the chapter. And in 28 through 39, he will describe God's unchanging love for us and how we are eternally secure that what God began, God will indeed finish. Now, when you read through this chapter, you are immediately struck by the sharp contrast with the chapter that precedes it. In chapter 7, Paul is preoccupied with the law. Here in chapter 8, he's preoccupied with the Holy Spirit. In fact, up until this point, the Holy Spirit has been rarely mentioned. He's only been mentioned twice. Briefly in chapter 5, when he describes the love of the Holy Spirit who's been poured out into our hearts. And then again in chapter 7 and verse 6, where we are told not to serve in oldness of letter, but in newness of the Spirit. But when you come to chapter 8, he's preoccupied with God the Holy Spirit. He mentions him no less than 19 times in the course of 27 verses. Now, we live in a day where there's a lot of confusion concerning the Spirit of God. Now, I really believe that much of that confusion is from the devil because the devil knows that for Community Bible Church to be a great church, we must be a Spirit-filled church. We often sing that great hymn as Protestants, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. But the devil knows we will march with a limp instead of a leap if we are not Spirit-filled believers. And so if the devil can bring confusion and disruption to God's people, then he will do it because he doesn't want the body of Christ to be victorious. And some pastors are afraid to even talk about God the Holy Spirit because they are afraid that they will be grouped in with those believers who have gone into excess. But if a pastor will not speak about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, he will paralyze his local church by their ignorance. And ignorance is often seen in the body of Christ just by the way we refer to the Holy Spirit. I hear Christians all the time refer to the Holy Spirit as it. He's not an it. Don't ever call him an it. He's not a divine influence. He's not a fleecy white cloud. He's not a bird. He's not a ghost. If you relate to him as a thing or as an influence, you will see him as something to be used, and he is not going to be used by anyone. Now, historically, over the last 21 centuries, there are typically two errors that heresies have brought into the church concerning the person and deity of the Holy Spirit. They either deny His personhood or they deny His deity or they deny both. But God the Holy Spirit is a person possessing all of the attributes of personhood. As you can see on this chart, number one, He has intelligence. Paul will speak when we come down to verse 27 of the mind of the Spirit and how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer, that we have two intercessors, God the Son and God the Spirit. And when we don't know how to pray as we ought, He comes alongside and He helps. His intellect is certainly seen in the fact that He inspired the Scripture, that all Scripture is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And certainly, He is called the teacher, which speaks of His intellect. The Spirit of God not only has intellect, He also has emotions. And so, in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, for instance, we're told, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You cannot grieve things or influences, but you can indeed grieve people. So, He has intellect, He has emotion, but the Bible also teaches He has will. 
For instance, when God saved you, the day He regenerated you, He gave you a spiritual ability in which to serve God's people. There are 20 such gifts listed in the New Testament. Everyone in this room who's been saved has at least one of those. And you are to find out what that is, but you don't determine what it is. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, the Spirit gives gifts as He wills. And so He's not an influence. He's not a thing. He is a person, and He has all the attributes of personhood. But He also has all the attributes of God. For instance, His attributes that He is omniscient. Uh, Isaiah the 40 says, who has ever directed the Spirit of the Lord and served as His counselor? It's a rhetorical question. No one has. The Spirit of God is omniscient. He knows everything. We would never instruct God. Not only is He omniscient, He's omnipresent. King David will ask in Psalm 139, where can I flee from your Spirit? If I go to heaven, He's there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the place of the grave, He's there as well. Why? Because He's omnipresent. But not only is He omnipresent, He's omnipotent. And so in Genesis 1-2, we see Him hovering over all of the creation as God brings about the marvelous world that we live in today. And He's involved in that creative activity. So He has the attributes of God, but He also has the actions of God. He does things that only God can do, like creating the world. Job will say in chapter 33 that the Spirit of God made me. He'll also say, the heavens were adorned by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, He is the one who moves men along to write Scripture. Only God can inspire men to write the Holy Scripture. And He's also involved in the process of a supernatural conception. So He has the attributes of God. He has actions that only God can do, like a virgin conceptions. But because He is God, He also has the associations that would come with the other members of the Godhead. For instance, this morning we baptized someone, as we do most every Sunday in one or both services. And Jesus said we are to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't baptize in the names, but in the name singular, because there is one God who's revealed Himself in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so you see Him associated equally with other members of the Godhead. In Paul's great benediction to the Corinthians, he said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so He was equally God. He is a person and He is God. And so we're not surprised that Peter would say to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? He said to this believer, you have not lied to men, but to God. So in lying to the Holy Spirit, he lied to God. Equally, Jesus said to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to blaspheme God. And so again, as Christians, we don't relate to the Spirit as a force to be used, but a, as a person who is God, who is to be revered, who is to be worshipped, and, and who is to be depended upon. One God having revealed Himself in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Here's an ancient diagram from the second century. As the centuries went through, it was modified. It appeared originally in Latin in a mosaic, but it's a beautiful illustration of the Trinity. You will see in the center it says God, and out from the center, God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. 
But you also see the Father is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son, and so forth. In fact, in a 12th century diagram, they put a big ring around it. And on the outer ring, it says the Father glorifies the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies the Son. And the Son glorifies the Father. Again, the triunity of God is plainly taught in the Holy Scripture. And all over His created universe, you see the triunity of God. For instance, in time, there's past time, there's present time, there's future time. But the future is not the present, the present is not the past, the past is not the future. They are distinct, but you cannot have one without the other. They are distinct and yet inseparable. Even in spatial relationships, in God's measurable universe, there is height, there is depth, there is width. And the height is distinctly different from the width, which is distinctly different from the depth, which is distinctly different from the length. The height is not the width, the width is not the length, the length is not the depth, but you cannot have one without the other. They are distinct, and yet they are inseparable. There are numerous illustrations, many of which fall short, so don't ask me to fully explain with my finite mind the infinite God. But I think one country preacher said it very well, the man who denies the Trinity will lose his soul, and the man who tries to fully understand the Trinity will lose his mind. Now, there are indeed a number of designations given in the Word of God to describe the Holy Spirit. He's water, He's oil, He's light, He's wind. And one of the more common designations is that He is fire. And today, I suppose in the body of Christ, there is one of two extremes. Because of great ignorance concerning the Holy Spirit, in many places there's no fire at all. Many dead churches. On the other end of the spectrum, there is what I would call wildfire. And Satan loves to get Christians caught up in extremes and excesses to confuse people with reality. But listen, that doesn't surprise us because as Lance Habner once said, God does, uh, man does not counterfeit gum wrappers, he counterfeits $20 bills. And Satan will always counterfeit truth. And he will always try to mimic what is real. And he's doing that in this day. And so I want to make sure that what we have is genuine, that, we either, that we're not guilty of no fire, but neither that we are guilty of wildfire. And there's only one way in which to know whether you are on track, and that is to subject your experience to the authority of the Word of God. You put experience under Scripture, you don't put experience over the Scripture. Jesus plainly taught that all that is spiritual is not spiritually good. In Matthew chapter 24, for instance, in the Olivet Discourse, he said, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. The Lord Jesus said there's a coming day where the deception will be so great that even the elect, that is even true believers, will nearly be deceived by pastors who preach less than an orthodox message. Satan can do signs and wonders and miracles, counterfeit miracles, counterfeit signs. And he does it, the Bible teaches, through counterfeit pastors. He comes, the Scripture says, as an angel of light. He appears righteous. And so with that said, Paul said, therefore it's not surprising if his servants, if his pastors, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The Apostle Paul is talking about men in the ministry. Many times, if you want to find the devil, all you need to do is look behind the pulpit. 
He's in many pulpits all across America. You say, well, how do I know whether I have the genuine thing? How do I know whether or not I have a real pastor? Well, Jesus said, I've told you in advance. That's how you know. What is he saying? He said, I've given you my word as a litmus test, as a plumb line to be discerning. And so in our day, there are great excesses that are confused with the workings of the Holy Spirit. And Christianity in many circles has become very self-centered. It's a very self-centered form of worship. And people, when they come to a church, they evaluate a church by the way it makes them feel. And they come to a church looking sometimes for a spiritual rush of sorts. And if the church makes them feel good, they say, well, this is a church I need to go to. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with feelings. God made us as emotional beings and part of worshiping Him with our whole being is worshiping Him with mind, emotion, and with will. But we are not to worship our emotions. We are to worship with our emotions. And there is a big difference. Many people worship a spiritual buzz but they're not worshiping the living God. You will see in some groups, excesses. They'll say, because I had this vision, this dream, because I spoke in this ecstatic utterance, because I've been slain in the Spirit and have fainted or I've laughed uncontrollably, I must be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Apostle Paul will quickly dispel many of the myths that have been adopted in our day. And he will teach us how it is that God the Holy Spirit works. Now, you're not going to get it in one sermon. I told you we'll probably be here maybe upwards of 10 weeks. And this is indeed the Holy Spirit chapter. And it's essential to what we've been learning in this whole process of sanctification. How it is that we are to live as Spirit-filled believers. And so in the 8th chapter, one of the things that Paul is going to underscore for us is that the work of the Holy Spirit never contradicts the word that he inspired. Some time ago, I met a man who came to the office and wanted to meet with me, and uh, he didn't have an appointment. And my secretary, Sarah, at the time buzzed me, and she said, there's a man here. He said he drove all the way from Ohio to talk to you, Pastor. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll speak with him if he drove all the way from Ohio. And he said, Pastor, God gave me a dream and he gave it to me for you. And he laid on my heart that I was to come from Ohio to tell you this dream, that it's the will of God that you need to teach your people that we never have to be sick, that we can all be wealthy, and we can by faith escape physical danger. Well, I just started by capsulizing the last point, escaping physical danger. I said, in physical harm and physical pain, I said, listen, Paul had a thorn in his flesh and Jesus had a nail in his hand. You have had a dream that is not consistent with the Word of God. But you see, his dream he called an experience that the Holy Spirit had given him. And so if you take the Spirit of God without the Word of God, you can have a puffed-up form of Christianity, and people can develop a false sense of spirituality. On the other end of the spectrum, you can take the Word of God without the Spirit of God who illumines it, and all you have is a dry, dead exegesis and understanding of Scripture that will not change your life. So some people are puffed up, some people dry up. 
because of a wrong relationship with God the Holy Spirit. But God's design is to take the Word of God by the Spirit of God to grow us up. He doesn't want us to be puffed up or dried up, but He wants us to grow up in Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, this is how He works in both justification and sanctification. How is it that you were born again? Jesus said three times over, you must be born again. And in John 3, 6, he says, you are born again by the Spirit. Okay, good. We're born by the Spirit. How else are we born again? Well, Peter will say, for you've been born again, not of seed, which is corruptible, but incorruptible through the living and abiding Word of God. Well, which is it? Am I born by the Spirit or am I born by the Word of God? Yes, it's both. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God. There, just as there are two parents in physical birth, there are two parents in our spiritual birth. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And of course, Jesus illustrated that in John 3. He told Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit. And then he went on to give him faith by illustrating from the Old Testament with Moses, giving him an illustration of the brazen serpent raised up in the wilderness. And so the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about justification. No one has ever become a believer apart from the Word of God in any age, however that Word came. And indeed, there was a time when it came in many portions in many ways. But today we have the written, infallible, set canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible. Now, if that's how we're justified, how are we sanctified? How are we made like Christ? When we come to Romans chapter 15 and verse 16, he will say we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And yet the Lord Jesus taught we're sanctified by the Word, by the Bible. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Likewise, the Apostle Peter will say, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, that is, if you've been saved, then like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word so that you can grow in respect to your salvation. So which is it? Am I sanctified by the Word of God or by the Spirit of God? Indeed, just as in justification, by both. And that's why Jesus will say in John 14, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. And so just as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about justification, He uses the same sword, the same instrument to bring about sanctification. So if you are the devil, knowing that the instrument for conversion and sanctification that the Spirit uses is the Bible, then what would you do? Well, you would, number one, try to discredit the truth of Scripture. And as soon as that slimy devil slithers onto the pages of Scripture, you find him doing that. Indeed, he said to Eve, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? But if a man believed in the Word of God, what would you do next? You would try to get that Bible-believing pastor not to study the Word of God. And you would get him distracted with many, many good things. But if I really love the Lord Jesus and I want to show my love to Him and to His people, then I will do what He told Pastor Peter, who is not only an apostle, all apostles are pastors, obviously not all pastors are apostles, but all, the pastors are, all apostles are pastors. And by example, Peter was told to feed his sheep. That's why there in the Jerusalem church, the apostles told those men, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. 
If you'd like to hear this message from Romans chapter 8 in its entirety, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org. You can also listen to this or any of Pastor Brogy's messages through our Search the Scriptures app, available on the Apple Store and Google Play Store. At Search the Scriptures, all our resources are downloadable and available free of charge. Consequently, we rely on the support of listeners like you to help offset our costs. If you would like to make a one-time gift or perhaps become a monthly supporter, call us at 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow we continue our look at the blessings of freedom from Romans chapter 8. Join us then as we search the scriptures.